Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to another edition of Something Rhymes with Purple, the podcast about words and language and, in my case, dictionaries, the very best book in the world. And I am here with my friend and my co-presenter, who's always surrounded by books, whether or not they're dictionaries, I'm not sure, Giles Brandris. Hi, Giles. I keep the dictionaries upstairs, Susie, Ah. in the dictionary and word room. The room I'm talking to you from today is my basement book room, where the acoustic, according to Gully, is better. That's why I'm down here. Mm -hmm. But also I'm surrounded by all the books I've written or been involved in. And I used to run a book packaging company, and we produced books for publishers to publish, and a lot of celebrity books that I did over the years with famous people. And I've written a book a year or sometimes more, for 50 years. My first book was published exactly 50 years ago. In fact, today, the day we're speaking, uh, 27th of April, I have a book published this very day, not one that I was expecting to see published yet. It was to be a, a celebration of the life of the Duke of Edinburgh for his 100th birthday, but it's turned out to be Philip the Final Portrait, and it's published today. And it's I love books. I love reading them. I quite enjoy writing them. It's become a habit with me. I've written Mm. all sorts of books. You've written a lot of books too. Mm. How many do you think you've written? I think I have written about 16 now, so not nearly as many as uh, as you. Have you never, honestly, never missed a year? No, never missed a year. Good grief. And and when when my children were smaller, I did a lot of children's books. Mm. And then you could do several a year. I mean, you know, the real children's authors, people like Enid Blyton, would write dozens of books in a year because children's books can be quite short and that imagination was so rich. So I wrote a lot of children's books. And I've done novels. Uh, quite a, I've done about 10 novels, and I enjoy those because they don't require so much research. Mm-hmm. And I've done a number of biographies, uh, books about, I mean, I did a biography of a Victorian entertainer called Dan Leno. Have you even heard of him? No. Yes, sort but of, I couldn't just tell about. you very much about him. I've seen Contemporary of Mary Lloyd. He was once called the funniest man on earth. And 100 years ago, well, 120 years ago when he died, he was without doubt the most famous man in the country after the king. I mean, he was mm-hmm. that famous. So ranging from people like him and the actor John Gilgood, I read a biography, right through to the royal biographies I've done with this latest one being about the Duke of Edinburgh. And they're fascinating because they involve so much research and it's riveting to, as it were, live life through somebody else's eyes. Yeah, and trying absolutely. And trying to get it right. Um, I read a lot too. Do you read? What are you reading at the moment? I do read a lot, but I have kind of, 
periods where I don't actually dip in very much. That usually coincides when I'm writing my own book and I feel like I've been staring at print and engaging my brain in a kind of linguistic way, perhaps a little bit too much. So I need a bit of, you know, something else. So that's when I will watch a good film or good oh, binge watch. I don't believe it. You don't go to bed every night with a book before you fall asleep? Not every night, particularly not when I'm writing. So, no. But then you also have to remember that I have my nose genuinely in the Oxford yeah. English Dictionary pretty much all day, every day. I mean, I listen to a lot of books. So I, you know, I love audiobooks. Um, absolutely love them. So it wouldn't be true to say I never actually have a book in my head or in my life. But as for actually physically reading something, no, not every day. If I sound a bit hoarse, it's because I've been doing the audio version of Gosh, this that takes ages, doesn't it? new book, yes. And, you know, you're in a studio for hours. And as the day wears on, your voice becomes yeah. rustier. But I couldn't go to sleep without reading. I, I have to, I mean, literally without reading. If I'm in a hotel and I haven't got a book, I'm literally trying to prise from the wall the soap canister <laughs> so that I can read the ingredients of the soap That's canister. That's how it started for me. Do you remember? So it's kind of reading my love of language actually started with looking at the ingredients on bottles and then kind of took off from there. And my favourite books when I was little where I would find, my, my dad didn't like central heating much, still doesn't. And I would find the warmest, sunniest place in the house which was this little bay window and I would squat there I'd kind of be on my um kind of on my knees just literally lost in a book but the books would quite often be annuals like children's annuals oh, yes. which not such a big thing these days but they really were in those days they're a bit like graphic novels I suppose with lots and lots of different stories in them and I love graphic novels as well that's another thing that so we did I talk about I still do I love Tintin Oh, Tintin's brilliant. And there's a fantastic pair of graphic novels by Arch Beagleman called Mouse, which is a um, recreation of the Second World War, which is incredible. So anyway, that's not what I was reading when I was little. I would be reading those annuals and lost in Enid Blyton until she was banned from our school library. That, yeah, so, but it all started with, with ingredients, the reading bug, strangely. I have to say, I mentioned briefly the book I'm reading at the moment, because I think it's relevant to language. It's a biography of the playwright John Osborne who famously wrote Look Back in Anger in the 1950s and a number of famous and great plays, The Entertainer, which was made into a movie and starred Laurence Olivier, a great play called Inadmissible Evidence, which starred Nicole Williamson. Anyway, he wrote two volumes of autobiography, which are gripping reading, and there is this biography of him by an Anglo-American critic called John Heilpern. And in it, I came across a list of words that John Osborne had tried to learn when he was a teenager. It fascinated me, the idea of this young man, before he was a playwright, wanting to relish the English language. And I was going to see how many of these words knew knew and whether you knew the origin of them. Because I thought, isn't this interesting? He was famous for his use of language, his invective, spectacular way he had with words, that clearly it began with him in boyhood and he would write them out. He'd look them up in the dictionary, mm -hmm. write them down and learn them and try to use them. And it enriched his vocabulary. So I, I recommend it. It's out of print. Um, and uh, I think it's called A Patriot for Us. 
and uh, it's by John Hartburn, a biography of John Osborne. So okay. more of that another day. But let's talk about books because independent bookshops, all bookshops are open again. We can go. In. I love a real book. I know people love Kindle and I've just been recording my book for Kindle. But I love the smell, the feel, the texture mm. of a book, don't you? I absolutely do. Should we start with where book itself comes from? Please. Because we think it's related to the word beech, as in the beech tree, because it was upon beech wood tables that runes were first inscribed. And beech in German, and we are at heart a Germanic language with English, is Buche. And a book is Buch. So you've got Buch and Buche, the beech tree and the book. So we think that's where it comes from. Oh. And what about the bits and pieces that make up a book? I don't know, the the pages. You you leaf through a book. I suppose why yeah. do you leaf through a book? Because well, it's funny. I guess not for nothing do um, lexicographers really talk about the roots of words because there's so many kind of references to trees, really. Um, so it's not just the beech tree and, and the runes. But in German, in fact, they also have for a letter of the alphabet, it's called Buchstabe, a beech staff. Folio is from, um, which is a book of a very large size, we should say, is from the Latin for leaf. We leaf through a book, um, oh. again, because they're like leaves of paper. And of course, they give us paper. And volume takes its name from volumen in Latin, which meant a roll. And that refer to the role of papyrus manuscript that was wrapped around a spindle. And of course, papyrus gave us paper. So the history of the book is inextricably intertwined with trees. That's intriguing. Mm. What about things that appear in a book? I don't know. The end papers are so-called because they come at the end of the book. I understand that. Mm. What about a frontispiece, something that comes... Well, I suppose it's because it's a piece that comes at the front of a book. Well, yes, except it didn't really start with piece. We changed it to piece because it sounded a bit like that. But actually, it goes back to the French frontispiece, which actually goes back to the Latin frontispicium, which was fronds, meaning the front, and specere, to look. So as you open the title page of a book or the the illustration facing the title page of a book, which is the frontispiece, you are looking at the front. But because it sounded like the frontispiece sounded a bit like piece at the end, we changed it and we changed the spelling as well. Gosh. Well, I'm actually leafing in my mind's eye, I'm leafing through a book and I've passed the frontispiece and I've got to something called the epigraph. And I know what it is. But mm. tell us what it is and why it's called an epigraph. Okay, so we have epigraph and we have epilogue, don't we? So epigraph, as you say, it's a kind of short quotation or saying at the beginning of a book or chapter. And an epigraph originally um, meant the heading of a document or a letter. It goes back to the Greek meaning to write upon. So it was simply, you know, something that was written upon the opening pages of a book. Whereas the epilogue, which is a speech or a section at the end, can be a final concluding act for an event, or it can be a speech, as I say, at the end. That goes back to epi, meaning upon or in addition, and logos, meaning speech. So it's a kind of added on speech, if you like. So the epilogue obviously comes at the end. The mm-hmm. prologue, the prologue comes obviously at comes beginning. at the beginning. And yes. it's the same idea. Yes. As a foreword comes at the beginning, like an introduction. Yes, it's and prologue f- is the same, exactly the same as a foreword. It's from before and logos saying. So it means exactly the same. They're doublets. You mentioned the word chapter. Where do we get mm. the chapter from? Yeah, gosh, chapter comes from one of the, the sort of really... Um, 
productive, should I say, families in English, because there's so many different, well, I say roots again of this word. So chapter literally means, in well, in Latin it did, a capitulum. It meant a little head. So it comes from caput, meaning a head. And a capitulum was a heading as well as a division of a book. And that's what gave us our word chapter. But if you think of that word caput, a head, it gave us captain, it gave us capital, actually gave us cabbage, which looks like a little head. It gives us lots and lots of different words in English. And the phrase chapter and verse? Chapter and verse, I think, would just be when we are quoting from the Bible and being sort of uh, referring to an absolute authority, we give chapter and verse from the particular place in the Bible where we sourced it from. Oh, very good. In my book, if it's a biography, obviously it has an index at the back taking you to the page that refers to whatever is listed in the index. Is the index at the back of a book to do with the index finger that you're leafing yes. through it with your index oh really it is yeah because it's all about pointing to something oh. so it came to mean a pointer it also gave us indicate so index itself is from well the second element is related to decorate to say which gave us dictator and dictionary and all sorts but the idea is that with your finger you are saying or pointing in the right direction i think books are our best friends and they're the one friend you can rely on. You can take a book anywhere with you, get on the bus with you, the train. You can go to bed with a book and not wake up with a regret or a disease. And that's the joy of a book. (laughs) It's totally reliable. And it's coming to the language, hasn't it? When we talk about books, there's there's hardly, well, there's so many phrases. Give us your favourite phrases and turns of phrase that involve books and tell us why they do. Well, I mean, just to to stay with chapter and verse, if you do something by the book, you are probably doing it according to the Bible. So it's a little bit like taking an oath in a courtroom where you swear something to be true. You are doing something by that book, by that authority. If you throw the book at someone, that probably isn't the Bible. That's probably a tome of law because it's something that a judge would do. And the book was originally used to mean the maximum penalty for a crime. So there's one novel uh, around 1911 and it has a prisoner saying that he is doing one life jolt and two one to fifties, yes sir, doing the book. Um, So it's a kind of notional legal term that judges have at their disposal and contains all possible punishments. And if they throw it at a defendant, obviously they're sentencing them as severely as possible. And if you're booking an offender, or if you're a police officer booking someone, then you're referring to, again, a record held by a law enforcer, really, where, you know, the criminal's details would be entered. What about the oldest trick in the book? The oldest trick in the book is, again, it's sort of the book is chosen here as a kind of metonym for, you know, a body of knowledge. So something that contains absolutely everything. And I think I, when I looked at the tribal language of magicians, I think the oldest trick in the book was the one with the three cups. I think, Mm. um, if you want to take it literally. But anyway, I think that's where that one comes from, just as, as I say, a metaphor for something that contains all the knowledge of everything. There's lots of other ones. There's being in someone's black books, which is related to being blacklisted. And there were several real black books in English history, so official books that were literally bound in black. So the Black Book of the Exchequer recorded royal revenues in the 12th century and you had the black book of the admiralty which was a code of rules for the navy but the most famous black book of all recorded the monastic 
abuses that were the evidence for, or provided the evidence for Henry VIII when he was dissolving the monasteries in the 1530s. And by the 16th century, it had come to be used for people who faced punishment. So you never really want to be in anyone's black book and certainly not in the days of Henry VIII. And to be blacklisted was to have your name down in that black book and to be under suspicion. And that has had lots of different applications. So a blacklist for a while was specifically an employer's list of workers in a union that were thought to be particularly troublesome. And then you've got the little black book, which actually it's fine to be in because I don't think we anyone has one of those anymore because we've all store phone numbers on our actual phones. But it, of course, was a record of telephone numbers of people you'd like to go out with, wasn't it? Did you have one? A little black book, not in that sense, but I did have. I mean, I did keep, and I still have got little books when I note numbers. I'm, I'm a little bit of a Luddite still. I, I'm very bad at putting numbers I write them down and then I never put them into the... Oh, I'm hopeless of that, which mm. is you know, why so many of my friends are still a closed book to me. <laughs> a closed book? Where does that come from? Very good. Well, just, just again, a simple metaphor that, you know, if you close the book, you finish the story and you have no idea what's inside. So if someone's a closed book, they are very inscrutable and yep. mysterious and elusive. Unknowable. Unknowable. Um, whereas if they're an open book, they're easy to read. Exactly. If you take a leaf out of someone's book... What are you doing? You're following their example. Yes. Yes, exactly. You're imitating them. There's a turn up for the books as well. Turn up for the books goes back to horse racing, where the book this time was the record of bets laid on the race um, kept by a bookmaker. So when a horse performed in a really surprising way, in a way that nobody expected and most bets lost, it was something that benefited the book and so the bookmaker. So if a real outsider won, it was a turn up for the bookmaker's book. And balancing the books is obviously from the world of accounting. Balancing the books, absolutely. Yes, as simple as that. And positive amounts would be written in black and negative amounts in red, hence in the black and in the red. My grandchildren wouldn't understand blotting your own copybook because they don't have copybooks and they don't have blotting no. paper, they don't have ink. Whereas no. I know what blotting your copybook means. Your copybook was where you learnt to do your handwriting. You did your alphabet, your A, B, C along yeah. the lines. And you had an inkwell and you dipped an ink in. And if you made a mess of it, you'd blotted your copybook. But mm. it's an expression that goes on even though we no longer have copybooks and blotting. Oh, gosh, I know. Well, we've talked about those, haven't we? Some people call those linguistic skewermorphs, so where we have references to kind of, they're, they're sort of fossilised words, if you like, in that they refer to technologies that no longer exist. And we do remember we talked about hanging up a phone, dialing mm. a number, or I don't know, the linen cupboard, where most people don't have linen anymore, all sorts of, of fossilised expressions in, in English. And I guess blot for the copybook or blotting your copybook is one of them. You read books professionally all day, which is why at night you are not what I am. I am a bookworm, even at night. I am a bookworm, but just not... I would say not every single day of the year is what I was trying to say. I absolutely adore books and I'm surrounded by books all the time, but sometimes I have to have a slight break from the actual reading. Why is it a bookworm, of all things? Why isn't it mm. a book eagle or a, a book wolf because <laughs> you want to wolf it down? Yeah, well, there was literally, well, probably still is, a wood-boring beetle which feeds on paper and glue in books. So I guess maybe the idea was that as these insects would bore into the pages of a book, so people who enjoy reading would do the same, albeit not in quite a parasitic way. Are you writing a book at the moment? 
I am writing another book. Yes, I won't tell you what it's about just yet, but I will oh. have news of it before long. But Yay! It's, <laughs> it's a lovely thing to do, but it won't be out till next year. I've got the, this year. I've got a little version of my of Word Perfect, the etymological diary, if you like. Well, not a diary, but it gives it offers you a word and a story for every day of the year. It's a, um, can I say that's one of my bedside books? I have a lot so, of books on oh. my bedside. I have you on my bedside. I always have a biography. I usually have a piece of fiction going. Yeah. Uh, and I always also have a book of quotations. So because uh, I, I can't go to sleep without reading something, even if it's only a line. Mm-hmm. So And do you always please. remember them? Oh, no. Can I say in a moment, after we've had the people's letters, you're going to give us your three words of the week. And what frustrates me is my wife says to me on a Tuesday afternoon, oh, uh, what were Susie's three words? And almost instantly, I've forgotten them. (laughs) And that's the problem. We've got to do a book of those words of yours because it's only if you repeat the words, I think, and put them in. It's like John Osborne. He wrote the words down and then he tried to bring them into his conversation or his writing because that's the way... You remember it. And there's interesting research being done that I was reading about recently that shows that writing it physically with your hand Mm. using paper and pen will make it easier to remember than simply typing it into a computer. Yes. So there's that. But you can type into a computer if you want to send us a message. It's purple at somethingelse.com. And that's something without a G. Let's take a quick break. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is Giles Brandreth with Susie Dent, and it's Something Rhymes with Purple, which I'm happy to say is a program where we celebrate words with people from all over the world, and delightfully, they call themselves purple people. Sarah Temple has written saying she is a purple person. She says, I'm a Brit living in Florida, and I've so enjoyed the podcast, especially the discussions on American English, which I found fascinating while living here. While baking with my son the other day, he chose this very moment to ask what diarrhea (laughs) and diabetes had in common. This led to us thinking of all the other words that start with D-I-A, which I think, says Sarah Temple, means through, like Mm. diamond, diaper, dialect. And we tried to think what they all had in common. Could you please shed some light? So Yes, I'm going to start with diarrhoea, I'm afraid. One of the most difficult words to spell, surely, in our language. And you know, I, I um, work on a spelling app for really tricky words for anyone who struggles with spelling. And this is one of my favourite animations because it shows someone running for the loo. And the way to remember the spelling is you say, runny, runny, help, oops, 
and that will give you the <laughs> R-R-H-O. Anyway, it does mean through, and it actually diarrhea goes back to the Greek for flowing through. You can leave to your imagination what exactly that is describing, but dia does mean through, and then you've got the R-H-E-I-N in Greek, which is to flow, and actually that also eventually gave us the river Rhine. It's all connected. Now, diabetes is an interesting one, actually. I was talking to, on Countdown sometimes, we have a doctor called Dr. Phil Hammond, and and I was talking to him about diabetes because literally the word means to go through again. And obviously diabetes, it kind of gives you the abnormal metabolism of carbohydrates and, and elevated glucose in the blood, etc. So things are not going through properly. But there are two types. There is diabetes mellitus, which means sweet you know, the, the sweet kind. And there's also diabetes insipidus, which means the tasteless ones. And in old medicine, doctors actually would taste people's urine in order to diagnose diabetes. And if it tasted sweet, they could diagnose diabetes mellitus. And if it was tasteless, it was diabetes insipidus. So there you go. That's completely riveting. What about <laughs> the other dyers that she mentioned? Are they also three words like diamond, diaper, dialect? Uh, diamond is not one of them. Oh. So diamond actually goes back to the Latin adamans. Now, adamans was a gem, essentially. It was a legendary rock, really, with many supposed properties. And one of them was hardness, which was why people sometimes identified it with what we now call diamond, because diamond is, I think, isn't it the hardest gem in the world? Um, anyway, the adamans gave us adamant when you were really, really insistent on something and as hard as that legendary rock. So it as, actually doesn't have dire in front of it in the same way, I have to say. So that, that one is a kind of odd one out. What about um, diaper? Yeah, so diaper, yes, it's similar. So the dia here means across rather than through. And aspros means white. Of course, it gave us aspirin as well. So a diaper was originally a really costly, very kind of white fabric. So it was white all the way through. And so eventually baby's nappies were made from that. Oh my gosh. Dialect? Dialect, yes. If you talk, it's to read through, if you like, or to talk through. It, it originally actually goes back to dialogue. It's related to that. And a dialogue is to converse with or to speak through with someone else. It's it's complicated because that dia can mean lots of different, different prefixes in English, but it is all connected apart from, um, as I say, diamond. Well, another letter now. Uh, this is from Sean O'Neill. I'm currently working my way through the back yeah. catalogue of Something Rhymes with the Purple, and I'm now at November 2019. That's a while ago. And the Nemophilism episode, mm -hmm. is that correctly pronounced? Nemophilist, if you're a wood lover. Yeah. Thank you. With this episode, uh, the wonderful word osine came up, which meant relating to songbirds. I was wondering if there's a link between the word sign and oscillation. Mm. Does oscillation have its roots in birdsong? Uh, I love the idea of that, but it doesn't seem to be, although the Latin for mouth was os, O-S. So that you might well find in Songbird if you take it back enough, because obviously they are singing these beautiful songs from their mouth. And you'll find that os in orifice, oral, um, and even usher, which was the Roman word for the mouth or entrance of a building. So the first ushers were kind of entrance keepers. But oscillum and oscillate, this is a story and a half. So I'll, I'll try and say this very quickly. So an oscillum in Roman times was a little face 
with a mouth. And the word was applied in Roman times to a mask, a little face on a mask of the wine god Bacchus. And you will find these um, masks, which were hung up in vineyards essentially as good luck charms, because Bacchus obviously was, you know, all about the cultivation of grapes and the drinking of, of grapes as well. And the little mask would swing to and fro in the breeze. And before long, oscillum, the little face with the little mouth, was turned into a verb oscillare, which meant to swing. And that's how we got oscillate originally as a term to describe the movement of a pendulum but it's all about a little mouth oh, that's charming uh, Susie and so thank you Sean O'Neill thank you everybody who writes in it's purple at something else.com something without the G Lucy Georges or Lucy George anyway she writes to ask this I found something I'd forgotten I had in a sewing cover today and it got me thinking that there must be a word for this in at least one of the world's many languages I've drawn a blank so far in Google searches so I was hoping you two masters of words might have some obscure moniker for this particular situation, which I must add seems to happen more and more frequently as the years pass by. Uh, she found something she'd forgotten in a sewing. So something you've forgotten, a word for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or something that you're reunited with. I, I want to put this out to the purple people because I don't have the obvious answer for this one, but I did just want to mention one of my all-time favourite words, which is French, and it describes a feeling that many of us will be experiencing, I hope, if not now, then very soon. And it's the joy of reuniting with someone or something that you haven't seen in a very long time. And it's the French retrouvaille, retrouvaille, um, the joy of reunion. So that's what I would like to suggest for this one, but I'm sure there's something which is a bit punnier and funnier. So if there is, let us know. Purple at somethingelse.com. Retrouvaille. I do remember that word. It's been one of your three favourite words, hasn't it? Give us today's trio, would you, Susie? Okay. So this is one that doesn't go very well with retrouvaille because it's something that we all want to avoid. um, And it's, I guess, a sort of... a kind of instruction to be careful because we want to avoid recrudescence. And recrudescence is the return of something bad. It can be a disease, um, it can be a situation, it can be the resurgence usually of something bad rather than something good. So that's recrudescence. So let's all avoid that and just be careful as we are beginning to get our freedom. So that's the first one. Second one is a humorously scathing word and it means a coward. So this really reminds me of some Shakespearean characters, but a quake buttock. Oh, I love it. Quake buttock is somebody who doesn't quite have the guts to stand up to somebody else or, you know. I'm thinking of Sir Andrew Aguecheek in Twelfth Night. I always feel the word might have been used about him. A quake buttock. (laughs) I mean, literally somebody whose backside is quaking in terror. Love it. I agree. And this may have been one of our trio, uh, my trio at least, during the drinking episode, which you'll find in our archives. But again, it's a useful one as we all slowly make our way out and meet people again, hopefully for an, a glass of something nice. Pot panion, somebody with whom you share a drink, a pot panion. Oh, it's like a companion, but you're sharing a pot of ale with them. That's the origin exactly. of it. Your pot panion. Exactly. Well, I'm looking forward to panion. seeing you in person. I haven't seen you for months. Oh, good grief. I know. Well, only on screen. On screen. But we may later in the year be doing some live shows. So everybody, do look out for the live shows and look out if we do some more special screen shows as well. Just keep an eye on what we're up to. I've got a poem this week. And because I've been 
writing about the past, the extraordinary past, the hundred years of the life of the Duke of Edinburgh, I've been looking back into his life. And because before that, I was working on a, a memoir of my own childhood, which will be my next book, I've been thinking about the past and remembering the past and how elusive it is. And that reminded me of this wonderful short poem by A. E. Hausman about how the past is there, but we can't really bring it back. We can only live our lives in the present. Into my heart, an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. Very wistful and very beautiful. I love Houseman. Shropshire lad. Thank you so much to everybody who has joined us today um, and who has joined us throughout our, um, I hate to use the word journey, but I think it's appropriate in this context when we're talking about the progression of the Purple podcast. Thank you. And do please keep getting in touch. Purple at somethingelse.com. Good. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Harriet Wells, Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beale, and someone who could actually now get out and get his hair cut and his beard trimmed. Why doesn't he? What's he called? He's my pop onion, Gully. <laughs> <laughs>